We're continuing the series, Winning the War in Your Mind, as we talk about going from a victim to a victor. And I want to ask you a question. Where have you felt trapped, stuck? Like there's just a place you can't get out of. You know, it's that area in life where anxiety builds and you feel overwhelmed. Is that in traffic? Is it a bad date or a bad series of dates? Is it a conversation you don't want to have, but you find yourself in over and over again? Or maybe it's your own house. You know, past 14 months, especially if you have kids, young kids, maybe your house has felt less like a trap and more like a prison. You know, where is that place that you just feel incredibly stuck? For me, it's Ikea. Yes. So every time my wife mentions that four-letter word, Ikea, my blood pressure goes up. My anxiety level goes through the roof because I know we walk in there and it's going to be complete chaos. You know, you can't spend 10 minutes in Ikea. For the first couple of years in our marriage, it would be hour-long trips. And you would walk in, there'd be 100 people walking around. And not only that, but you know, they've got these arrows on the floor. And they're supposed to help people move in one direction. But nobody follows them. It's like everyone slows down and goes the opposite direction. Then they're crisscrossing. Then you have these awful carts that all four wheels pivot on them. So you think you're going straight and all of a sudden you're turning sideways and people are going everywhere. It's complete chaos. Not only that, like as my blood pressure rises, my anxiety rises, and I start to look for ways out, I see these doors in between these sections. And I keep thinking and hoping If I just walk through that door, somehow I am going to get free. But what happens? Time after time, I'm walking out of one living room. I go through that door with this glimpse of hope that I'm finally going to get free. And what happens? I end up in another living room. It's like a mirror house in a circus or a carnival. You just can never get free. Where is that place for you? Maybe it's a place, maybe it's a time, or maybe it's all the time. What is that place where you just feel trapped, like you can never get out of, you are overwhelmed, you're underappreciated, you feel like your back's up against the wall, like everybody's out to get you, no matter how hard you fight, you can never overcome. Where is that place? Today, we're talking about winning the war in your mind, how we can overcome some of these thoughts and live life with less anxiety. The story that we're talking about today, I absolutely love because the biblical character has all the odds stacked against him. Like his life is just not going right for him. It's actually one of the longest stories we have of one individual character. His name is Joseph. And there's something powerful in his life that allows him to overcome all these setbacks. So I want to read out Genesis 37. Joseph. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, I'm going to have to interrupt this story a couple of times because jumping in at Genesis 37 means we're missing a whole lot of his family history. And I don't know if you caught it, but it said Joseph was out tending the flocks with his brothers, his father's wives. Wives, plural. Like there's multiple of them. And so we have to get a little bit of background. So the first thing that we need to realize is that his father is named Jacob, but he's got two names. So Jacob and Israel. 
They're the same person. Jacob is Israel. Israel is Jacob. It's the same person. It's Joseph's father. And we learn about him through a series of his life stories. And it just portrays this complete mess of a man. So we're going to stick with the name Israel because that's what's used in our verses here. Israel works for seven years to marry Rachel. Like his, he is heart set on this one girl and he works for seven years. And finally, the night of his wedding comes and what happens? His father-in-law pulls a switcheroo and Israel doesn't end up marrying Rachel. Instead, he marries her older sister, Leah. Now, how messed up is that from father-in-law, right? Well, that's the ancient Near Eastern practice that the older sister gets married first. So Israel wakes up and he sees Leah there. Instead of Rachel, and his heart is broken, he's filled with bitterness, and he looks down on Leah because he's had his heart set on Rachel the whole time. And so he makes an agreement with his father-in-law. Let me work seven more years so that I can earn Rachel's heart and hand in marriage. And his father-in-law agrees. And so at the end of the seven-day celebration for his wedding to Leah, what does he do? After seven days of marrying Leah, he marries Rachel. He's got this sister-wife thing going on, and these two women are now his wives. And it makes a complete mess of things because he absolutely adores and loves Rachel. The problem is, Leah is able to have babies and Rachel can't. And in the ancient Near East, how you earn favor and status is by granting male babies, by having babies that can carry on the family name. And Leah is having babies, but Rachel can't. So what does Rachel do? She gives Israel her maidservant, Bilhah. And Bilhah starts having babies. And Leah gets upset that now Rachel's side of the family, you know, Rachel and Bilhah, are having babies. And so what does she do? She gives Israel her maidservant, Zilpah. Like, this is a complete mess. Now we have Israel sleeping with four different women. Two of them are his wives, and he's having babies by two other women. It is a complete mess. It is basically a jealousy-motivated baby-making competition. Talk about a messed-up family dynamic. And finally, after about 10 kids, Rachel has a baby. And that kid's name is Joseph. And that's the person in our story. Joseph comes on the scene, and Rachel would go on to have one more child, Benjamin, but she would die in labor. And Israel is left with this empty hole in his heart as his favorite wife has died, leaving him with just Joseph and Benjamin, now his two favorite kids. So when we read Genesis 37, 2, and it says he's out there with his brothers, what it's really saying is he's out there with his half-brothers, his less-than brothers. And all his half-brothers are looking at him going, Daddy loves you best. Do you think that endears them? Israel looks down on the half-brothers' mothers. Do you think that builds a good family dynamic? Well, we got to go on. Joseph brings a bad report to their father about them, about his half-brothers. So not only is Joseph the favored one, but he's also a tattletale. Like he is just wreaking havoc in this family dynamic. Verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made him an ornate robe. If you've been in Sunday school, this is the coat of many colors or Joseph in the technicolor dream coat. It is a symbol of status and favoritism. It communicated to his half brothers every day they saw that coat 
that they were less than, that they would never be enough for their father Israel. No matter what they did, they were never going to be enough. Verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. In 11 verses, it is said that Joseph's brothers hated him four times. Four times. Not only that, but in the Hebrew, it says they added hate upon hate. They added it. They heaped it on over and over again. They've got this growing rage within them. Literally, when it says they couldn't speak a kind word to him, they couldn't speak any peace to him. They wished him ill. They wanted him gone. To summarize, Joseph's is basically a dumpster fire of family relationships. Like it is just a hot mess. It is filled with betrayal, deceit, incest, rape, murder. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, beaten, left for dead, and eventually sold into slavery all by the time he is 17. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? How easy would it have been to feel trapped by his family dynamics, to feel stuck, to be at the bottom of the barrel, like a whole world is stacked up against him. It would have been incredibly easy for him to look at his half-brother and say, you are to blame for that. Now, I hope you're not to the level of Joseph's family dysfunction, but all of us at one time or another have things from our past that have control over us. Things where we feel like we are the victim and we have no power, whether it's our situation, an addiction, a choice, that we've made all these things finally catching up to us that have ownership over who we are and where we want to go. To some extent, these events become part of our identity. They shape the stories we tell about ourselves, and it's all too easy to blame others in the process. Dr. Stephen Stosny, he's a psychologist, he writes this, Victim identity is identification with bad treatment you have suffered. It is focused on the perceived damage at the hands of someone else or on personal weaknesses that you have, that others have exploited. Damage and weakness become integral part of your identity. I need to say, there are real victims. Joseph didn't deserve to be born in the family that he was born into. You may not have deserved or, or contributed to some of the experiences that you've gone through. I know there's some things in my life that I feel like I've been truly a victim. There are grave injustices that have been done. And my heart aches for those situations. What I see in this story and what I see in Scripture so often is that we are called to move to a place where we identify those pains and those hurts. And then we walk in a new identity. We don't allow those hurts and pains, those injustices to define who we are. That is the story of scripture, that we are not locked by the past. Because when we are locked by the past, when we're locked by the evils, the pain that has been done to us, we are giving power to evil. We are giving power to the pain that has been done to us. And instead, Joseph's story teaches us that we have to make a choice, a daily choice. Are we going to accept the identity that is thrust on us? Or are we going to learn to walk in the identity that God is giving us? 
Are we going to live under the identity that's thrust upon us? Or are we going to begin walking in the identity that God is giving us? In undergrad, I had just completed a battery of personality exams. Uh, this I- way of identifying kind of the unique markers of my personality. And after about four of them, my professor looked at them all. They surveyed them and he summed it up with this phrase. You don't like people very much, do you? Now, that hurt a little bit, especially being in ministry school, studying for pastorship. You know, one of the things pe- a pastor is supposed to do is like people, right? So he says this statement, you don't like people very much. And it was kind of tongue in cheek because I'm introverted. I'm task oriented. Because of my past, I carry a fair amount of cynicism towards people, which is not a good thing. But I allowed that to kind of work its way into my identity. It was a funny statement. It held a little bit of truth. And what I allowed it to do is actually take more power than it should have. I used it as an excuse for how I treated people and and my views on things. And one day I realized that this lie, this kind of joke, had worked its way into my identity in such a way that it's begun to kind of cripple who God wants me to be. It was a lie that found incredible power in my life. And it had to be addressed with the truth of Scripture. God calls me to love, to care for, and empathize. And daily, I wake up saying, God, help me to love people more. What identity are we holding on to? What lies are we allowing to influence our identity? And what truths are we speaking over our identity? How do we win this war? How do we win the war in our mind? There are two things I see in Joseph's story that I've also seen play out in my story. The war in our mind is one when we reflect and we respond. Reflect and respond. First, we have to reflect. Ambrose Bierce, he's a 19th century author and journalist, says this. All people are lunatics, but he who can analyze his delusion is called a philosopher. Why is this important? It's important because a lie believed as a truth will affect your life as if it were true. Let me say that again. A lie believed as a truth will affect your life as if it were true. Now, the great 21st century philosopher George Costanza from Seinfeld says this. It's not a lie if you believe it. Well, how many lies do we take in that become truths in our life Too many thoughts coming in and out. Too many words from other people that begin to have hold over our lives. They set themselves as truths in our life and they go in and out uncritically examined. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That is lies. These mental traps, these false identities, the things that wrap their hands around us and break down who we are. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey God. If we don't take our thoughts captive in the midst of our circumstance, when our circumstance changes, we'll still be trapped in our thoughts. Do you get that? If we don't take captive our thoughts in the midst of our circumstance, when our circumstance changes, we'll still be captive to our thoughts. We'll be trapped. 
because our circumstances are always changing, but our mindset needs to be set free. Joseph does this. He's been in slavery for 13 years, in and out of prison. He has hit rock bottom. He has time to reflect. And over and over again in the story, I absolutely love it, uh, the author puts in these little insertions, and the Lord was with him. Joseph begins to see the Lord, God himself, working in the midst of his situation. And after 13 years, he finally reconnects with his brothers. Finally reconnects with them. And he has this amazing statement. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, speaking to his half-brothers. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. God himself has put me in this place for a specific purpose. I love what Rabbi Jonathan and Sachs observes about this story. He writes this, over and over again in the Joseph narrative, there is a break between cause and effect and intention and outcome. What he realizes is that when God is in your story, when we reflect on the truth of God's scripture, when God is allowed to have power in our lives, the evil intentions by others do not determine our outcome. The causes from others do not have a lasting effect on our life because God is ultimately in control of our destination in terms of our outcome and the path that we're going in. God is in control. The second thing that we need to do is respond. Notice I didn't say react. I think too many times when we're faced with the pain of our, of our past or the pain of the situation that we're in right now, we react. When I say respond, I'm talking about taking ownership, responsibility for our words and our actions despite the actions of others. Romans 12 says this, Do not repay evil for evil as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As Joseph identified the truth in his situation, he took the power out of the hands of his brothers. He stripped evil of its power. After 13 years of being a slave, if we're reading this story for the first time, we're reading along and we realize 13 years after being a slave, thrown in prison, he finally reconnects with his brother. What are we expecting Joseph to do? What are we hoping he will do? He is going to exact vengeance, right? He's going to finally get retribution on his half-brothers for beating him, leaving him for dead, and then selling him into slavery, sending his life down this horrible path. That's what we're expecting. But what does he do? Joseph speaks peace to his brothers. Can you believe that? Like, think back to the beginning of the story. Joseph's half-brothers could speak no peace to him. What does Jesus, Joseph do? He says, is it well with you? Is it shalom with you? Is it peaceful with you? Is your household in peace? Talk about removing power from his enemy. When we are stuck in a victim mindset, we are giving power to evil. We are giving power to the evil that has been done with us. And too often we react in kind with evil. God is calling us to respond to evil with good. When we respond intentionally, when we take ownership of our words and our actions, we overcome evil. We take away the power of evil and we grant that power back to God in our lives. And that changes our outcome and our destination. It changes our identity.
The challenge that I see over and over in my life is that too often I justify my circumstances, my decisions, my actions, my words. I justify them on the basis of how others have treated me. Well, I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't done this. Or that's not really who I am. They just caused me to. It's justification. And it's responding to evil with evil. And what God calls us to is to break that trap. And Joseph breaks the cycle by taking ownership of his actions, extending forgiveness. And when he does that, he grants incredible power back to God. Well, growing up, I felt trapped in my own house. I had an alcoholic father that was manipulative. He was controlling and oddly enough, very detached. And that left me just feeling worthless feeling lonely. It it increased such levels of hate and anger in my life, and it sabotaged every relationship that I entered into. I felt unlovable. And even the people who loved me, I saw it as passing and manipulative. It really messed me up. And when I was sitting in Florida at age 18, my first year of college, something hit me. I got tired of the control that my father had over my emotions, my life, my hatred, how it sabotaged every relationship, how it caused me even to hate him, to treat him less than. As I was reading scripture out of John 13, this story hit me. And Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, which in that day was just a nasty job. Because you got people walking around barefoot or in sandals. You got animals roaming the street. You have all the dust from the fields and the streets. And, and you just have a lot of stuff. You know, you got animals walking around. You get what I'm saying? A lot of stuff on their feet. It was reserved for the lowliest of servants. And Jesus offers to do it. But that's not the end of it. The passage says he washed all of his disciples' feet, knowing what was coming. What's it referring to? It's referring to the fact that one of his disciples, Judas, was going to betray him. And that betrayal would lead to his crucifixion, his humiliation. But what does Jesus do? He washes his feet. Knowing the evil that was coming for him, Jesus responds with goodness. He responds with love. That story hit me because I realized I was following Jesus, but responding to evil with evil. I wasn't fulfilling who God had called me to be. I wasn't responding the way that God had called me to respond. And in so doing, I was allowing my past to shape my identity now. The hurts and the victimization that I had faced was shaping my identity and it was controlling who I was. And when I acknowledged that, my identity changed. When I replaced that lie with a truth, I felt like I moved from victim to victor and something changed in me almost 20 years ago. Almost 20 years ago, and every day since, it's been a process of me daily taking responsibility for my character, my circumstances, my words, my behavior, my actions, my attitudes. All these things have been a daily process. I've been married to Joanne for almost 14 years. And you can ask her, I'm a far cry from what I was 14 years ago. I still have a long way to go. But I'm constantly replacing that identity and that image that he had placed on me. This doesn't happen for Joseph overnight. Didn't happen for me overnight, but today it can begin for you as you reflect on the truths that God is calling you to and respond 
with the actions and words that overcome evil, responding as Jesus would respond. Where are you trapped today? What negative thoughts do you need to overcome and replace with a truth? As we close today, I want to challenge you to identify one victim trap, a lie that you have been believing, and then write down a victor's truth and what that is. It is the truth that is found in God's word about who you are. We need to cling to it for too long. In my life, I believed a lie that my father determined how I would father. That my past determined my future. That I was unworthy of love. That I would be no better than him. That was the lie that I had been told. That was my victim trap. Here's what scripture says. Here's God's truth over my situation. Scripture says, I have been adopted into a new house with a godly father who would move heaven and earth to do anything to be with me, to love me. That he would teach me his ways, that he would renew a new character inside of me. That he would give me new hope and new life, that he would renew my heart and reshape, define my identity. That is my victor's truth. That is what scripture says. What does scripture say about your situation? What does scripture say about your victim trap? We need to identify a lie and replace it with the truth. As we listen to this final song, I want you to take a moment, write down one lie that you've been believing and replace it with one of God's truths.